Good morning. Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. We'll be looking at the whole chapter today. Hebrews 9, beginning on page 1005. Be helped to have your Bible open. We'll be referring to this throughout our time this morning. And um, um, while you're turning there, so I've thought about this passage this week. I'm reminded of, uh, of, of a saying that Pastor Kent Hughes um, once said. He said, the tragedy of our times is that men and women have lost their eyes for the unseen and believe in hope and work in the visible. We can see that. I mean, no pun intended. We understand that, I guess. We like the tangible. We like things that we can touch and we can smell and we can see. But we can also add feelings to that list as well in that tangible sense. The tangible includes things that we can touch or smell or see or feel either physically or emotionally. We're often led around and make decisions based on feelings. It may not be reality, but it just kind of felt good in my gut. And we have a society that has come to realize that we don't necessarily need to make appeals to reason or logic to prove our point or to win you over to our side. It's much easier to make someone feel something than to try to convince them of a truth. Product sellers have realized that they can shortcut a lot of hard work in selling if they can just get you to relate to an image or feel a feeling. This is even translated to how evangelical churches conduct their worship services. It's not enough to preach a sermon. You have to start with a catchy movie clip or an acted out scene or a prop and then we'll spring from there, from that real certain thing into conceptual things. Let's give them an image to hold on to. But many churches have also realized that if they can get you to feel something, then their mission is accomplished. I've heard friends say, I love going to that church because every week you just leave on a high, ready to tackle the week. But I've also heard this friend, some friends say, I don't want to feel good when I leave church. I need to feel a little beaten up when I walk out the door. I've heard lectures on crafting worship services where they say you have to start with hymns based on a major chord in order to build unity and excitement at the outset. And then they, they play the next hymn in the same key, but you slow it down to give them a chance to think about what they're doing. And then the next one, you bring them back up again. And if you raise your hands, when you tell them to raise their, their hands, they'll follow along with you. That's when you're truly a worship leader, when you can get people up or we can get them to raise their hands. And then when you want to feel sorrow, bring the room down, play a song in a minor key, but you always finish with an anthem. You always have to have a victorious shot at the end of the service. We want to be able to touch and see and feel So we are often drawn away from the true thing that we should be focusing on. This isn't a new phenomenon. 
when Jesus was with his disciples in John 14. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then like the very next verse, Philip goes, Jesus, if you just show us the Father, it'll be enough for us. It's like, did you not hear anything I just said? We're all prone to the tangible, which is why the Hebrews were drawn back to the old covenant ways. They thought Jesus is in heaven and out of sight, but we can go back to the old form of worship. We can go back to the temple or we can go back to the tabernacle and it'll help us spiritually. We can see and we can smell our offerings. We can leave there feeling like we've accomplished something. It's not a big deal. It's just a worship aid. It helps us in our worship. Incidentally, I used to feel this way too. I remember when I first became a Christian and began reading my Bible and I got to Exodus in the, the construction of the tabernacle and I just was like searching those words and trying to figure out, okay, what was, what's the hidden mysterious meaning behind this hide or, or this symbol or, or this material that they were using? I poured over those verses and studied intently my, the diagrams of the tabernacle construction in my study Bible. I, I thought that by knowing those things, then I could know Christ so much better if I just really dug into that. And then about 10 years ago, a local church hosted the tabernacle experience where they had this traveling tabernacle that would come in and they would set it up and you could tour the tabernacle. I think about it often, especially when I'm thinking about where things are in the tabernacle. I can visualize it. But since we've started studying the book of Hebrews, I've often wondered what the author of Hebrews would, what his opinion would be of the tabernacle experience. I think he would say, why waste your time on that when I'm offering you the real deal? No copies, no illusions, no mock-ups. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.18, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is what the author of Hebrews is after in Hebrews chapter 9. He wants us to think about this question. So let's begin reading Hebrews 9 verse 1. This is God's word. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, an Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. 
These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes. But he, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of, the, of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify the pure, for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the first, as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with, blood, with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would, have, he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. So in verses 1 through 10, we see the limitations of the old covenant. 
He goes into some detail and he says, I'm not going to talk about it a lot, but he goes into some detail on the limitations of the old covenant. In verses one through five, he talks about the tabernacle or the tent itself. He doesn't concern himself with the outer courtyard, but he goes right to the holy place and in, in the most holy place inside the tabernacle itself. And we learn about the furniture of the holy place. When you walk in, you've got the golden lamp stand on your left side on the left wall. And then on the other wall, you've got the golden table with the bread of the presence, the, the, um, the um, uh, showbread that was placed on that table. And then he moves into the most holy place or the holy of holies behind the curtain. And if you were to look in there, there would be the Ark of the Covenant covered with gold on all sides. And in the ark were the two tablets of the law and a jar, the golden jar, the golden urn of manna and Aaron's budded staff. His, his staff that was made of almond wood that, that, that God made, made bud with almonds. And above the ark were the cherubim of glory that overshadowed the mercy seat. And he also mentions the altar of incense. Now, those of you who are big on your tabernacle geography or you're already checked out in your board and you get, oh, there are tabernacle maps in the uh, study Bible. And so you've already flipped over uh, to look at the tabernacle map. Um, the altar of incense is not in the mercy is not in the Holy of Holies. It's outside. Now, obviously, the writer to Hebrews knows that the mercy uh, that the uh, altar of incense wasn't in the Holy of Holies. But I think why he includes it in the Holy of Holies is because the purpose of that altar of incense was to, to, was to continually have smoke in, that wafted into the Holy of Holies. And so that, that smoke was a pleasing aroma to God. And so it was, always cover, it was always filling the Holy of Holies. It's not a big deal. Anyway, so we're going somewhere here. And in, that's in verses 1 through 5. But in verses 6 and 7, the author explains what the ministry of the priests look like. And he said they go into the holy place regularly performing their duties that he sees there in verse 6. They replace the bread, the show bread, every Sabbath. And there were instructions about how to bake that bread and how it should be arranged and how frankincense should be placed on the table as well next to the bread. And then they had to tend the, the lampstand that constantly shone light on the showbread to make sure that the oil was plentiful and so that it wouldn't go out. And incense was offered daily and sacrifices were offered repeatedly daily after day after day. And then in verse 7, he speaks of the work of the high priest. He goes only into the Holy of Holies once a year where God's presence was. That's where God's presence was in the Holy of Holies. And he never goes in without taking blood, first for himself, and then also for the unintentional sins of the people. Now in verses 8 through 10, the writer begins to explain to us and show us how this old covenant really didn't provide the worshiper with the access nor the benefits of God's presence that the covenant seemed to promise. He mentions that we're considered uh, that what we are considering here has been illuminated to us by the Holy Spirit. It before was hidden, but now through the Holy Spirit, we're able to look back on the tabernacle and understand its limitations like never before. These deficiencies had been hidden, but now they have been revealed. 
And we can learn a lot by what he's written. But before we look at the deficiencies, we must understand that these deficiencies in no way reflect the deficiency in God's purposes or in God's character. These were partial fulfillments that were pointing to a final and complete fulfillment in the ministry of Christ. This in no way, shape, or form sheds any, cast any um, uh, cloud upon God's work in the Old Covenant. How can we know that, know that the old covenant, were, old covenant means were what God had intended? Well, just look at the Holy of Holies. God's presence is there. It wasn't, if it wasn't what God intended, would he stick around? Absolutely not. And then we have Aaron's staff of almond wood that budded. This reminds us that Aaron's ministry was a God-ordained ministry for that time. It was regulated by God and it was informed by God. We also look at the two tablets, the law, the law that we considered in chapter 11 that, that the author says was weak and useless, was nevertheless given, to, given by God to them to preserve them and protect them until the coming age, until the age of Christ had come. And then we see the manna. God graciously provided for them in following these laws. So they were living in accordance with God's will as they sought to obey God's laws. And the priests, they continued in service. They, didn't, they weren't killed like Nadab and Abihu. They, complete, they continued day after day. These priests came in regularly, so God is pleased with their service, and they were there at the Lord's command. This is exactly what the Lord intended in the Old Covenant. But we can also look at these verses both by what they say and by observation and see that the full promise had not yet come. There are some limitations in the old covenant worship that point to a future more perfect fulfillment. The author suggests there in verse nine that there's a deficiency in the sacrifices that were offered. They didn't perfect anything. The people still had to bring their offerings of lambs and bulls and goats and nothing ever changes. They're still sinning day after day. Sacrifices increase, sin increases. The rules and regulations, he says uh, in, in verse 10, only deal, only deal with food and drink and various washings. All of this is for outside of the body. It doesn't do anything. It has zero effect on the conscience of the soul or, or the inner man. This could possibly be what Jesus is trying to put a finger on in our, in our New Testament reading where Jesus is spurring these Pharisees to go, you're so concerned with the outside of the cup. Look at the inside of the cup. How do you deal with the inside of the cup? And if they really sat, sat there and listened to it and thought about it, they'd go, you're right. We can't really deal with the inside of the cup through these rules and regulations. What offering or sacrifice is possible that will deal with the inside when their conscience is continually saying, you're guilty? And we see other hints that this isn't the ultimate way God dwells with his people. For one, they're offering sacrifices every day. There's no spiritual headway being made at all. No one's getting any closer to God's presence. In the high priest, he's only allowed in the Holy of Holies one day a year. Is this what God promised when he said that he would dwell with his people? 
so that their high priest could come in into the place where he was one day a year? And he couldn't, that high priest couldn't even enter boldly either. I mean, he came in offering blood for himself and for the people. There's some traditions that say that the high priest wore bells on his body and they had a rope tied around his waist. Because if he went in there and offered a bad sacrifice, then the Lord would strike him dead and they didn't have a way to get him out. So they'd have to drag him out. Is this what God promised with God's presence? And when the high priest came to the Holy of Holies, what was the first thing that greeted him when he appeared, when he approached the mercy seat? Two cherubim. Two winged creatures. And where else do we encounter cherubim? Genesis 3.24 He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Surely that signifies that although there is a provision for the high priest to enter the Holy of Holies, the true way is not yet opened. And finally, let's consider the reference to the offering. It's the offering of what? It's the offering for what? Unintentional sins. This is an offering for sins they didn't even realize they were committing. We talk about purifying the conscience. I see the conscience alluded, alluded to here because they're, they're sinning against the Lord and there's no tweak to their conscience at all. There's nothing. They don't even realize they're doing it. So they've become so hardened and so, so calloused that they don't even know their minds are dark and they don't even know they're offensive to God anymore. But their oblivious sin shows that their hearts are hard. If you're not a believer, this may be surprising to you. That not only are you guilty before God for the sins that you knowingly uh, rebel against and what you know to be right, but you're also offensive to God in countless ways that you don't even realize are unintentional sins. And even God in the old covenant provided a way for him to dwell with his people even in the midst of unintentional sins. Even in the old covenant, God was a gracious God. But we see the second allusion to the conscience. The people realize that their sin wasn't fully and finally dealt with. They're like, hey, you're right. We just left the temple and now I'm sinning again and the guilt doesn't go away. And while I may have been restored socially to the people of God and outwardly cleansed, I still have this gnawing sense of guilt that should have caused the people to look forward to a future, to a future day when things would really be different according to God's, according to God's promises. That they would be sensitive to God and his leading and not be rebellious to him and his ways. To look forward to a high priest who could actually save. We encounter this high priest in verses 11 through 14. Christ is the high priest of good things that have come. How is he better? By contrast to what we read in verses 1 through 10, this priest, Jesus, he ministered in a more perfect tent, a heavenly one, not made with human hands. He entered once for all into the true holy place. He entered into heaven. By means of his own blood, he secured an eternal redemption 
for us. The author then argues, hey, if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of heifers spread on you would purify your flesh, then how much more would the blood of Christ, the Messiah, purify our whole body, including our conscience? The Christ was morally unblemished, not just physically unblemished like the animals. The blood of a lamb can't take away sins. It signifies death, but it's the death of something that the worshiper owns. It's kind of costly to him, but it's not necessarily costly. Costly, I got a whole herd of them. But in order for the sacrifice to be truly efficacious, it needed to be someone who was both human and divine. No human can atone for sin. But verse 14 tells us that Jesus offered himself through the eternal spirit. Luke often refers to Jesus's work being empowered by the Holy Spirit. Jesus says in when he unrolled the scroll uh, of Isaiah in Luke, Luke 4, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. So this Jesus is equipped by the eternal spirit. He secures uh, for his people an eternal redemption that we see in verse 9, 12. And we see an eternal salvation that we read about in 5, 12. And then we see an eternal inheritance in 9, 15. So Jesus' eternal sacrifice, his, his eternal work, secures an eternal redemption, an eternal salvation, and an eternal inheritance. So the Old Testament usually refers to uncleanness being a, a physical defilement related, uh, related to sin, but Jesus' um, cleansing goes all the way. It, goes, it cleanses the conscience, as we'll see next week, Lord willing. It's a promise that God had made through Jeremiah. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me. And I will forgive, forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And that cleansing leads us to serve the living God. Tom Schreider, uh, uh, commenting on verse 14, says, Those who are thus cleansed are liberated to serve the living God. They are not saddled with guilt, but purified from it. And thus they can live in confidence and joy before God and serve him gladly. We see in verses 15 through 26 that Jesus' offering institutes a better way. Jesus' offering institutes a better way. Jesus didn't just offer a sacrifice that was more powerful than the old covenant sacrifices. He is the mediator of a new covenant. Jesus wasn't just offering a sacrifice so that we could go back to the old ways. Jesus' sacrifice brought about, initiated, instituted a better way so that all who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. At the end of verse 15, we see that this, this, that this better way, this new covenant is so great that it even redeems those who committed transgressions under the first covenant. It even reaches back and saves those people under the first covenant who were looking forward to the fulfillment of God's promises. This is a better way. This doesn't just replace the old covenant. It redeems the old covenant. It fulfills the old covenant. 
And the author links this new covenant with an inheritance. And I think that the, when we consider this new inheritance, it leads us to assurance and endurance for us. How does it lead to assurance? The author assures us by calling this an eternal inheritance. And he refers to it, uh, he, he alludes to it by referring to a will. This inheritance is like a will. Our inheritance belongs to us. How do we know that our inheritance belongs to us? Because Christ died. That's how we know our inheritance belongs to us. We may have wills lying around our house and we're pretty sure we know where they are, but we don't really need them today. We're not too concerned about them. You know, there's no pressing need for them today. But I remember about 30 years ago, there was this, it wasn't a good movie, but it was entitled, Daddy's Dying, Who's Got the Will? And so, and so this is a common thought. Now that death has occurred, okay, there's a death that's occurred. All right, well, let's look, where's the will? Because now it's in effect. In Hebrews 1, 2, Jesus was appointed the heir of all things. He's the heir. But in Hebrews 6.17, he calls us heirs also of, co- of the promise. And, and Paul in Romans 8 calls us co-heirs with Christ. So how do we inherit that? How do we become heirs of that? We became heirs of that internal inheritance when Christ died. It's ours. We have an assurance there, but we also have endurance. We have endurance because of this new covenant that he instituted. The author explains that how all covenants are inaugurated with this, with blood, right? In the Mosaic covenant where we read about in Exodus chapter 24, he sprinkled all the peoples with the blood of calves and goats. Everything was covered with blood. The worshipers, the law, the book, the utensils, the tent, um, all of it was brought about by shedding of blood. That covenant was ratified with blood. But there are limitations to that covenant that we read about in Exodus 24. I'm reminded of later on in Israel's wanderings, wilderness wanderings, when the Ten Commandments was reiterated and the covenant was renewed in Deuteronomy 5. They say something very similar to what they said in our Old Testament reading today in Exodus 24. They say after they hear the Ten Commandments, Israel says, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We'll do it all. We will be obedient. That's what Exodus 24 said. But in Deuteronomy 5, 28 and 29, God speaks to Moses after he hears them say, all of that we'll do. God says, I have heard the words of this people that they have spoken to you. And they are right in all that they have spoken. But oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep my command, keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and their descendants forever. They were well-meaning, but that old covenant did nothing about their hearts and minds. There had to be another covenant to come. And there was another covenant to come. The covenant that we read about last week in Hebrews 10, in Hebrews 8, 10 through 12, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, 
for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. So that conscience, there won't be any, there won't have to be any unintentional sin when this covenant becomes, uh, is fulfilled because we will know the Lord. We will know everything. We will be sensitive toward his leading. We'll have hearts and minds for him. And then he says, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I'll remember their sins no more. It is this covenant that was instituted by the blood of Christ. Not a heifer cut in two, not blood sprinkled on a tent or a congregation, the blood of Jesus Christ. And it is in effect right now. We have an eternal inheritance that leads to assurance and endurance for us because Jesus offers us a better sacrifice on our behalf. And we see the benefits of this eternal inheritance in verses 23 through 26. We have access to God. That's what we see. Yes, the blood was necessary for the earthly tent to be purified so that God could dwell with his people. Everything needed to be purified. But we have a high priest who has entered not into the earthly copies of the real thing, but of the presence of God in heaven. Verse 23 makes it sound like heaven needed to be purified because the present, but, um, because of our sin, but the presence of God doesn't need purification. The point of what he's saying here is that we have access there. We have, we, um, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. We have access into the presence of God. We sang, dear refuge of my weary soul, where we thought about, you know, the refuge that we have in Christ. We have fled for refuge to Christ. But verse four of that hymn says, thy mercy seat is open still. So there are no cherubim left on the mercy seat. There we have free access there. We have, we, can, we have retreat for our soul there. When we're feelings, when we, we are feeling and we're, we're weary, dear refuge of my weary soul, we don't have to be seeking things that can tweak our emotions. No, we've got the real place that we can go. We can bring our weariness to the mercy seat and it's open for us. We have access there and we can be sustained and provided for. We have access to God in the heavenly realms. Christ has entered there on our behalf and is there before the Lord in the innermost places. There's a subtle warning to the worshiper who seeks to go back to the earthly tent in verse 24, where he refers to that tent made with hands. The reference made with hands in the Bible usually refers to idols or idolatrous temples. And so, that, and so it seems that he's saying now that this way is open, it's idolatrous to go back any way toward that. Don't go back that way. Don't seek tangible things there. Seek the mercy of Christ at the mercy seat. You have a great high priest who suffered once, not year after year, not day after day, but once. And he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin 
by the sacrifice of himself, to cast as far away from us as east is from west our sins from us, for so far as he moved our transgressions from us. And so Jesus' priestly work gives us strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us that we see in verses 27 and 28. That hold fast set before us really is is a quote that we've read earlier from 618 where he says, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. But now we've had it explained clearly to us because of Christ's work, Christ's sacrifice, Christ providing a better way in the new covenant. We have much more reason to hold fast to the hope set before us because Christ offered himself once to bear the sins of many. We have nothing to fear. I've recently had the opportunity to speak with uh, some brothers, not of this church, but others who, who um, were talking about the return of Christ and they meekly or apprehensively look toward Christ's return. Like, I mean, it's dread. They're fearful. They believe they'll be saved, but they somehow believe that Christ's return will be one of great carnage in which they barely escape. And so they're very anxious for that day. Hebrews helps us with that mistaken notion. Jesus died once for sin, and he will appear a second time, not to somehow punish you for your sins. That's finished. Your sin has been put away. He's put it away from you, verse 26. No, he will return on that day to save those who are eagerly waiting on him. We don't face the coming judgment with fear and anxiety but with hope and confidence, knowing full well that Jesus is bringing final salvation to those who belong to him. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see the hope to which you have called us and the riches of your glorious inheritance. Forgive us for ways that we seek to placate or pacify ourselves with paltry things of this world or even spiritual quick fixes to take away our guilt. Either religious acts of devotion or words But Father, we pray that we would draw near through our great high priest who has opened for us the mercy seat where we can find comfort, we can find encouragement, we can find strength, we can find endurance, we can find rest for our weary souls. Please help us to encourage ourselves with this reality as we think on the heavenly things. In Jesus' name, amen.